Would you take your Bible with me and turn to Psalm 13 this morning? Psalm 13 is where we're going to where we're going to be. Uh, we're going to consider all six verses of of this psalm today is the first day of Advent. Uh, that means that uh, we are officially in the Christmas season, uh, and uh, and we are eagerly waiting for the the coming of uh, a Savior. And where we stand, are eagerly waiting for him to show back up. We're excited uh, that uh, that we can, together as God's people, be those who look forward to and know with certainty that God's promises find their yes in the person of Jesus Christ. And so, this morning we're going to Psalm 13, which may seem like a strange place to start our time in, in, uh, in Advent. Uh, but the reason we're doing that is because uh, all of Scripture and all of human history really is pointing to one person, and that person is Jesus Christ. We, as God's people, affirm that, uh, that the Bible is a cohesive story, that it begins in the book of Genesis and it ends in the book of Revelation, and everything in between is revealing God's plan of redemption for us. And this is what we call redemptive history. The Old Testament is a progressive revelation. It's giving us more and more information about how God plans to redeem his people for himself. And then in the New Testament, we see that plan come to full light. We see very clearly, even as we looked at or have been studying the prologue in John's gospel, we see that the life was the light of men, that Jesus Christ came, that men might have life and that they might have it abundantly and, uh, and that life finds its revelation in the light of the world, who is Jesus Christ. He exposes everything and shows us God's plan, God's perfect plan to redeem a people for himself. And so we can pretty much go anywhere in Scripture because of this, because of it all is pointing to the person of Jesus Christ. We can pretty much go anywhere in Scripture and find a, uh, an important passage about redemptive history and God's plan to bring his people back to himself. But this psalm this morning, I think, is fitting uh, for several reasons, and we'll get into those into in a minute. So we're actually going to, over the course of the next four weeks, in the Advent season, explore four different psalms. We're going to explore Psalm 13 this morning, next week, Psalm, chapter, psalm 40, and then Psalm 8, and then Psalm uh, 110 after, after that. So there you go. If you have those written down, 13, 48, and 110. Take some time to meditate on those psalms this week, especially as it relates to, to Advent. Let me read this psalm. Uh, King David wrote this psalm. You'll see there in the heading, To the choir master, a psalm of David. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice, because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. We call Christmas time Advent, and Advent is just the arrival or 
the coming of a, an important person or time or an event. And so when we look at the advent of Jesus Christ, we're thinking specifically about two different things. First, the, the coming of Jesus Christ into the world 2,000 years ago as he was born in, in a, a barn in a humble circumstance. And he came into the world to, to deal with sin and death. And he did so, and he, he was raised and is now ruling and reigning at the Father's right hand, which then gives us uh, hope and also points us forward to the second coming of Jesus when he will arrive again and gather his people into to himself. But Christmas time, we celebrate the coming, the first coming, and that second coming. But the first coming represents or, or represents to us a, a unique point in human history. Again, that turn where God's redemptive plan would be would be revealed to to his people. The Virgin Mary giving birth to Jesus, the one who would suffer for our sins, and the one who would reign or the, who would end the reign of sin and death. And after stomping out death, Jesus ascends into heaven to rule and reign at the Father's right hand. And uh, and that's again ensures that we don't just celebrate one coming, but we celebrate two at Christmas, one that's, that has happened and one that is yet to happen. The second advent, the coming of Jesus Christ a second time is divinely scheduled. We do not know the day and the hour. Those are unknown to us, but the promise is sure Jesus is in fact coming back. So advent is far more than just a baby in a manger. It's designed to remind us the purposes that Jesus Christ came into the world to deal with sin and death. And it's designed to point us forward then to the return of Jesus Christ. Not just Christmas trees, not just nativity scenes, but to point us forward to the conquering Christ when he will return to gather his people to himself. And so I think then that Psalm 13 is a fitting place to kick off Advent. Psalm 13 is a, a fitting place for us to start because when, when we live after Jesus' first coming, we are waiting for his second. And so the questions that, that King David writes here in Psalm 13 are incredibly relevant. The psalm was, in fact, written by King David, and despite being Israel's greatest king, he had a lot of problems. David was a murderer. He was an adulterer. Um, he had a whole lot of family problems. If, if you're dreading or thinking about family at the holidays and, and, uh, and are frustrated, uh, you don't have David-level problems. Some have suggested that this psalm was written when David's son Absalom was pursuing him, trying to kill him. Um, I don't think many of us in this room have kids who are trying to, to murder us, but... but <laughs> But the, the reality is that, uh, that David was experiencing and did experience his fair share of problems in his life. Now, there really aren't any clues here as to what exactly is happening in Psalm 13. There really aren't any clues as to what the exact context is. If you flip back to Psalm chapter 3, if you look there, you'll see a, um, a, a heading there. A Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son. This is written specifically then we know when Absalom was pursuing David, trying to kill him. Uh, we don't get that in Psalm 13, so we could, uh, we could, what stands to reason that something 
difficult is happening. It could have been Absalom's pursuit of David, but we don't know that for sure. And so what we can say for certain, though, is that David uh, was undergoing some substantial difficulty, some trial, some suffering, some tribulation. Uh, David was facing any number of those things. And, and he didn't have a shortage of any of them. And I think the intersection point then is pretty clear for us. Uh, it's unlikely that if you're in this room this morning, that 2020 has gone in the way that you've wanted to at all. If you woke up on January 1st of 2020 and said, this year is going to go this way. And if you're sitting here on November 29th of 2020 saying, yeah, I went exactly the way I thought I was going to, I'm going to, I'm going to call your bluff. Like, I think you're crazy. But this psalm then is an important place to start because it's an emotional plea to God about disrupted plans, about a disrupted reality. It's an emotional plea to God at the beginning in verses 1 and 2 and, and a cry out to God in desperation in verses 3 and 4 and then, and then a resolution in the heart of King David in verses 5 and 6. You've heard it said that time flies when you're having fun. And the question that I find asking myself regularly is, well, what happens when I'm not, not having fun? And, and I think that this is a clear indication that, that King David was not having fun. About this psalm, Charles Spurgeon, a 19th century preacher, wrote, Time flies with full-fledged wing in our summer days, but in our winters he flutters painfully. I like that imagery. Um, that this year has fluttered painfully, I think, for many of us. Rhythms have been disrupted. Work has been a challenge. Moving things virtually has been draining. Uh, relationships have been strained. Some of us have lost loved ones in the midst of all that's going on in the world. And it feels like the opening of Psalm 13. It feels like what David cries out here at the beginning of Psalm 13 intersects with our lives in many different ways, and it resonates deeply. He says, how long, O Lord? There really, I mentioned this a moment ago, but there really are three sections here in this psalm, and we'll explore one at a time. Verses 1 and 2, um, and then verses 3 and 4, and then verses 5 and 6. And each of these three sections gives way to a, a ne the next section, which is a more hopeful section. And... Each of the sections are designed to point us forward to God's faithfulness. That we know, 2,000 years after the first coming of Christ, we know uh, very specifically that that came in the form of the advent of Jesus Christ. And we can look forward then to the second advent of Jesus Christ. All of the, what is written here by King David points us forward to that second advent coming of Christ. And so here are the contours of this psalm, what it looks like and the shape that the psalm takes. The first, again, verses 1 and 2 are questions that come in the midst of suffering. These are very human questions. They're, again, they intersect with our, our lives. And then in verses 3 and 4, there's a call to God in desperation. And then in verse Verses 5 and 6, like I said a moment ago, there's a resolution. There's three specific resolutions that David makes in his heart to trust and to rejoice and to sing. 
And so let's look at the first two verses, though, to start our time, because there are four questions that start with the words, how long? How long? And in the four questions, there are kind of five themes that we could extract. Being forgotten, being deserted, being confused, being sad, and then feeling under-resourced. I'm going to break those down, so if you didn't get those, you'll get them as we go. Being forgotten, being deserted, being confused, being sad, and feeling under-resourced. And actually that second one there is the one that I want to spend the most time on. So the four questions, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? This is the first question. Uh, This is the pinnacle in this psalm of sort of an emotional outburst. It starts the furthest away from objective truth. And David just says what he feels. He says what he feels here. God is all-knowing, and David knew this well. But David, for this moment, feels as though God has forgotten him entirely. And so he just calls out in his frustration. Calls out, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Again, a, a strange thing to be saying about an and a God who is all-powerful and all-knowing. And yet, David feels this in his heart. Do the difficulty, do the suffering, do the trial that he's facing. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? The next question, though, he asks in the second half of verse 1, How long will you hide your face from me? And I think that this this question is grounded in more objective reality because David's not asking, will you forget me forever, God? He's asking, how come I can't see you? How come I can't see you at work right now? And I think this is grounded in truth because God is all-knowing and so forgetting is off the table. But God's standing at a distance is completely within the realm of possibility. And so David is experiencing a season where God is not near in order that David might learn, in order that David might grow. We don't know exactly the purposes here, uh, although we can glean some things from the next two sections. But I think that this question sums up, personally, how I've felt a lot in the last few months. How long will you hide your face from me? Maybe you're feeling similar. Maybe this question resonates with you this morning. How long will God hide his face from me? What, what is, what, and sometimes I think as Christians, we don't actually like think in these terms. Because we don't actually engage as often as we should with our, our Bibles and in prayer. But maybe you've had a season in your life, and maybe that season is now, where you've spent a lot of time in the Word and in prayer, and there's nothing. It just feels empty. God has not deserted you ultimately, and you can say that with objective truth. You say, well, God hasn't deserted me. I know this to be true, but he, he may be at a distance. And again, like I think many of us have had a lot of plans this year that have gone unfulfilled. I know that I have personally had a lot of plans for 2020. I wanted to see, do things with our family. 
Well, I had plans for Buffalo City Church, uh, relationships that I wanted to press in into and to see grow. I wanted to hone some skills. I wanted to, uh, you name it. It all went out the window. And this week, uh, God took me to uh, Hebrews chapter 12. I don't, I, don't, I don't know how I got there, but I was there. In Hebrews chapter 12, I'm going to come back to this in a second. But I was meditating on Hebrews chapter 12. And I think that because the direction of this year has been so strange and different for, for so many of us, I think we have the tendency to focus on the big picture. Because actually processing at, at the, the heart level for each of us is, is way more difficult or at least more painful. But what Hebrews 12 did is I think it took me to, uh, took me to thinking about my own culpability, my own, uh, my own um, participation in the, the ways that the things are in the world. And I think as Christians, like we talked about last week, the culture is washing over us at any given moment, and mostly that's a godless culture that is giving you and like telling you, like build your life around things that don't involve God. Outside of this hour on Sunday morning, the world is telling you, don't, don't take God into consideration. Don't take his word into consideration. The person of Jesus Christ isn't that important. And I think that Christians need to take a hard look. I think all of us in this room need to take a hard look at how we've approached the last several months and how little we've actually resisted, resisted these godless forces that have washed over us. The introduction of increased difficulty in our world, for some of us it's more than others, but the increased difficulty in our world is is the means, it is the way that God uses to course correct his people. Let me say that again. The introduction of increased difficulty in our world is a means, is the way in which God course corrects his people. I'm not talking about the United States of America. I'm talking about the church. I'm talking about people who profess to be Christians. Christians need to wake up, and we all need to see that we've been selfish and sought comfort, and our attitudes have been resistant to stepping out boldly and following Jesus and making disciples with all of our, with all of our lives. But that only happens when we see increased difficulty in our world, not as something that we're a victim of, but something that is genuinely our fault. Like, not our fault generally, like collective we, but like, like Caleb Drehosh is the reason why things are the way they are in the world. Because in my sinful flesh, I have willingly engaged in sin. And you and your sinful flesh have willi- re- willingly engaged in sin. And when we find ourselves in the midst of difficulty, what we want to do is play the victim and blame political parties. And we want to blame pandemics. And we want to blame media outlets. Because it's easy. We don't stand outside of these things, though. We don't stand outside of political unrest and economic troubles and pandemics. Our sin contributes. We can't always be pointing the finger elsewhere. 
but we continue to sin and then wonder why the world is the way it is. We need to stop pointing our finger at these outside sources and start examining ourselves. Because right now, in the midst of difficulty, for the people who profess Christ, idols are being exposed in our hearts. Could this be what God is doing with David here in Psalm 13? How long will you hide your face from me? How long will I not be able to see you and your plan, God? Could it be because I have erected idols in my own heart and worshipped them willingly? The good news here, though, and this is where the Hebrews 12 thing comes into play, is that the good news here is that God loves us. If we're in Christ, like we're his kids. And if God is good, which he is, and he's a good father, then he's going to discipline us. Dads, we know this. Like You don't let your kids just eat candy nonstop and watch TV nonstop. You discipline your kids, and that's what it means to be a, a good father, at least in part. But sometimes that discipline involves separation from the family, like a timeout. And so here's where, here's where that Hebrews 12 piece comes in. The author of Hebrews writes, For our earthly fathers disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So, what we can take away from this is, one, we are active participants in the difficulty that the world has brought our way. It is because of our sin that the world is difficult. Christians, what sets us apart is that we acknowledge that and we repent and we turn. And then secondly, we can say that the difficulty that comes to us through a world that is fallen and corrupted by sin is actually God's, the way that God is using and forming and crafting us into, into more into the image of Jesus Christ. God is using this for our good. And as I thought about that, it's like, I'm ashamed at how faithless I've been in 2020. Like, and God, how, how he's, he's committed to my growth in the, what the author of Hebrews calls the peaceful fruit of righteousness. He's like, there is not this yield and there needs to be this yield. And there's not a yield, but it, there needs to, so we got to break up the, the, the ground. We've got to break up the hardness of heart that is, has gone after things that will not yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And so God has disciplined me by being at a distance at times. You ever seen that the disruption of my plans again for my family, for Buffalo City Church, for an idol that needed to be, an expo- be exposed? Now, I'm not, I'm not saying that those plans that I had for my family were bad. Maybe they were. I, I, the, the jury's out. It hasn't happened. Maybe I'm not saying that the plans that I had for Buffalo City Church were bad. Like, I don't know. That's not the point. But the way that I had hoped 
that they would happen, the way that I would hope that they would come about, and the timing of them, we can say for certain that those are wrong. I was quick to be frustrated. I am quick to be frustrated, and it showed me that these are just idols for me. So could it be that we feel like God is at a distance right now in our lives, and the way, the reason we feel like that is because God is exposing an idol in our hearts. I don't know what it is for you, but your, maybe your desire to control things. Uh, maybe it seems like there's something that you can't lose that all of a sudden now feels like it's losable. Like your job or a family member or, or a way of life. And I think the call here, and I think the question leads us to, to this place, and it's to repent and turn back to God. Trust God, like David says that he, he does in verse 5. When he says, I have trusted in your steadfast love. We'll get to that in a moment. But David feels like God is at a distance. How long will you hide your face from me? The next thing, though, we see here at the beginning of verse 2 is that David says that he's confused. I'll run through these quickly. He says, how long must I take counsel in my soul? That's just a fancy way of saying, I don't know what's going on. And the more I reflect inside, I'm not getting answers. And the second, second couplet there in verse 2 is, and have sorrow in my heart all the day long. David is sad. How long does he have to feel sorrow in his heart? He says, all the day long. Like this is touching every area of his life. It's not like a sadness, like your football team loses a game and then you kind of get over it and move on. This is a deep sadness that has actually, actually touched every area of David's life. And then, how long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Sometimes the enemy language in the Psalms is difficult for us because it's not just that person at work that you don't get along with. That's not how we should apply this. But what David is saying here, I think, at the core of it is that he feels under-equipped for what he's facing. He feels like he hasn't been properly resourced to deal with his problems. His enemies are exalted over him, and God allowed David's enemies to have a season of prosperity. And this is is frustrating to David. And so in the first two verses here, these four questions that he asks that all begin with how long, they, they indicate to us that David's suffering was for an extended period of time. Uh, Jason Meyer writes about these verses. He says, to feel the weight of these words, people can withstand heavy amounts of suffering. Sorry, try to feel the weight of these words. People can withstand heavy amounts of suffering in a short amount of time. It is far more draining and difficult and disorienting when suffering is not a sprint, but a marathon. It wears you down. You keep expecting it to end, and it just keeps going. That's where David was. It just kept going. How long? How long, O oh Lord? But this leads us then into the next two verses, verses 3 and 4. And this is a call by David to God for, in desperation. And David asks God to consider and answer him. He says, O Lord my God, consider and answer me. 
David asks God to consider an answer because what he's doing here is fully admitting that if things are going to change for him, it has to be God. It's not going to be him. It has to be God who makes the move, who does it. Uh, Tim Keller writes, When pain and suffering come upon us, we finally see not only that we are not in control of our lives, but that we never were. And so David is fully admitting, I'm not in control. I, I don't, I, this suffering that has come upon me, I, I'm not in control and I never was. Consider me and answer, O Lord my God. And so David then asks something specifically. He says, light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. That's maybe strange language to us, but what David is asking for is that all obstacles would be removed from his sight in order that he would see God clearly. He's asking that the things that are hindering him from believing that God is, is good and for him would be removed. And that God is the only one that could lift him out of his state. He wants to see this clearly. And so, light up my eyes is a hopeful request because he starts by saying, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long, O Lord, will you hide your face from me? And when the face is hidden, the eyes can't see. And so he asks to see. Light up my eyes. David realizes that what is standing in the way between him and seeing God may not actually be God hiding himself, but may be David's unbelief. Here's where the Christmas intersection comes here with this text. And so don't miss this. This is why the psalm, I think, is important for Advent, because we can read and focus on the first coming of Christ at Christmas. Let's also look forward to Christ's return. And while for the world we live in, it's not the default to believe that Jesus Christ came into the earth the Son of God, and lived a life that we couldn't and died the death that we deserved, humbly born in a, in a barn. Well, that's not the default position. It's an even more bonkers position to think that, uh, that Jesus is going to come back. Instead of seeing a baby in a manger, though, the second coming, we'll see what the Apostle John sees in the book of Revelation. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, like, like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest, the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Not the manger scene. Jesus is coming back, and this is what he's going to look like. So when you're saying like David, how long, O Lord, when you're tired and worn down by what it seems to be long-term difficulty and suffering, or in a world that's shifting away from what you hope it look, would look like, follow David's lead and pray that God would light up your eyes and that he would remove your unbelief and that you would believe fully in your heart that this scene you will behold. In order that your unbelief wouldn't cause you to think that your heavenly father doesn't care. So that you can see clearly that God isn't in the business of forgetting the promises that he makes to his people.
The final thing here in verses 5 and 6, and this will serve as our conclusion this morning, is that David resolves three things. David resolves three things here. Uh, these three things that we see clearly are to, uh, to, to um, trust, to rejoice, and to sing. David has trusted in the steadfast love of the Lord, he says in verse 5. He rejoices in salvation, he says in verse 5. And then in verse 6, he says, he sings because of God's blessing. And each of these three things we can see are tied up in the person of Jesus Christ. It's because of God's love for us that he sent Jesus into the world. Jesus Christ is the source of our salvation, even as we explore together in John's gospel. And Jesus Christ is the answer and the fulfillment of all of the promises of God. So David trusts, he rejoices, and he sings. Now this seems like a far cry from where we started in verse 1, and yet this is a resolution that David makes in his own heart. As God answers the, the lighting up of the eyes and the removal of unbelief and the taking away of the obstacles, David is begins to see more clearly, even in a hazy moment, that his response should be this, trust, rejoice, sing. Before we go, though, the, the most practical one here, I think, it, for us is sing. And so this is going to be the, actually the application here, because we can measure it. We can measure our, our singing. The, the most practical application is what David writes in verse 6. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Again, we, this year just not gone as planned. David faced tough times, things probably far tougher than we can imagine. And he felt them deeply. But again, he doesn't stew on these forever. He, he moves forward. He takes a step and he resolves then to sing. And so the question is, actually, when was the last time that you sang? Now, I don't, not, this morning doesn't count. And last Sunday didn't, doesn't count. But when was the last time that you, you sang? It, this, this, I think, is a call to fill your home with singing this Christmas season. Don't, okay, stop. Don't, don't fill your home with other people singing. I'm not saying put on a Christmas CD or... A Spotify. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying fill your home with your singing. If it's just you sing, if it's you and your spouse sing, if it's you and your spouse and your kids sing, if it's you and your spouse and your kids and your grandkids sing. Men, lead your family in, a, in singing a hymn that exalts Jesus around the dinner table. Again, turn off the streaming service, turn off whatever it is that you're, you might put on and, and fill your home with singing. And you, you say, I'm not good at singing. Well, I think this is the problem. I think that we've just relegated singing in our homes to professionals, like that we hear on the radio. But there's no professionalization of what, Paul, or what, uh, what David writes here in Psalm 13. I will sing to the Lord. And you say, I'm not good at singing. And my response to that is, who cares? <laughs> We've relegated it to professionals because we've watched too many singing competition shows. So you're overly self-aware. 
friends, I'm an objectively poor singer. Like, not, not terrible, I don't know, like, but below average. But I sing with my family, and I've said this before, and maybe you remember me saying this before, but someday my kids will ask me to stop. They haven't gotten to the age yet where they actually think they, where they think it's bad, but it's bad. And, but someday they'll be like, Dad, you, you're bad, stop. And, and I'm telling you, I'm looking forward to that day because I'm going to say, nah, I'm not going to stop because it's not about my abilities. It's about the trustworthiness and the love of God that causes me to rejoice and sing. But you, if you're a bad singer, you have an advantage. You have an advantage because it's not about you then. There's no way it could be. There's no way it could be. My kids need to know it's not about my abilities and not about their preferences. It's about a God who has dealt bountifully with us. He's emptied the treasury of heaven by sending Jesus Christ into the world, and so we do what David says we should do, and we sing. If, if you struggled again with this year, just you're normal. It's normal. David struggled too. And maybe you've even said this, probably not exactly like this, but maybe you've said, how long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? But as you're thinking like that, don't just say, it'll be okay. We'll tough it out. We'll get through it. Don't do that. That's not what King David does. Rather, commit yourself to the things that David does. Trusting. Rejoicing. Singing. So this Advent, celebrate the coming of Jesus Christ, the one who defeated sin and death. And sing for joy. Friends, he's coming again. Sing for joy because he's coming again. He'll gather our weary souls and collect us to himself. Let's pray.